you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. The Season with Peter Schrager is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. What's up, everybody? Uh, It's Peter Schrager. This is The Season with Peter Schrager. I am so thrilled uh, to be hosting this podcast this week. We just got through an incredible, incredible championship game between the Bengals and the Chiefs. The Eagles and 49ers, not so much. Nothing against the Eagles and what they just accomplished. They dominated, but that game to me is forever tainted by the the quarterback situation with San Francisco. Um, nothing taking away from this NFC championship. They were the number one seed. The Eagles did everything they possibly could and did so uh, in flying colors, and they've just rolled into the Super Bowl. But gosh... That AFC Championship game was one of the classics, and uh, I think our guest this week is going to help us relive it and give some thoughts and then go a lot deeper in it. Our guest is a gentleman named Eric Stone Street. He played Cam on Modern Family. He is an incredible, incredible dude. He is a friend of mine. We've gotten to know each other through the Chiefs um, and his love for the Kansas City franchise. But over the last few years, we've become incredibly close. And I'll talk to him just about every other week about the Chiefs and where they're at. And he joins on the podcast today and is it is beautiful. He's wonderful. And he gives us stuff from not only his experience uh, in Arrowhead on Sunday night, but also his career in Hollywood and how it wasn't a meteoric rise to the top, how there were setbacks and there was a difficult journey and there was adversity and there were people who took shots on him. And gosh, it sang to me and I think it would sing to any football fan as maybe Hollywood is as competitive as the NFL and for Eric Stone Street to come out of it all with two Emmy Awards for his role in Modern Family um, is, is the stuff that we love talking about and the journey and the path and just having confidence in yourself and trusting those who who give you a shot. Real quick, before we get to the interview, some top line stuff. If you're listening, when this thing posts, coaching jobs right now, there has been one that has been filled. That is the Carolina Panthers gig. And that is Frank Reich. If you told me a month ago that Frank Reich would be the first coach hired in the coaching hiring process, I would have told you that's probably not going to be the case. Well, it was. It made a lot of sense from Carolina's side. Of course, there has been some questions as to why Steve Wilkes did not keep his job. Let's see where Wilkesy ends up a fine coach in his own regard, a guy that we almost had on the podcast one time at the last second he had to cancel because he had to prepare for a game. Uh, I love Steve Wilkes. We'll see where his career goes. But that job went to Frank Reich, 61-year-old head coach now of the uh, Carolina Panthers. He was the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. Of course, he was with the Eagles and the Chargers before that. Uh, Reich is a leader. He's a gentleman. And if Doug Peterson set the standard of, hey, fired from one place, 
you know, hang your head in infamy, be ashamed. No, no, no. Get back on the horse and let me show you something. Carolina, uh, they hit it off. Of course, you saw the numbers and the stats there that he was the first Carolina Panthers quarterback to ever throw a touchdown pass. He was on the expansion Panthers and it all comes full circle. But what about those other jobs? I'm hearing D'Amico Ryan's to Houston is almost a formality at this point. So put that one there. That makes a lot of sense. Former second round pick. Superstar player for them. He was the captain of the Houston Texans for several seasons. Uh, that would be a fit that makes a lot of sense. Arizona, they've they've got interview invites out for just about everybody, and they added more today as we record this on Tuesday. Um, Mike Kafka, the Giants' offensive coordinator, has been has been asked to interview. I reported on Monday that. Both Bengals defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo, and offensive coordinator and former guest on the season with Peter Schrager, Brian Callahan, both got interviews with Arizona. They're both there today as we speak. Denver's the interesting one. Denver's been quiet. I will say this. As Denver and Indy and Arizona are still kind of jockeying, and I think Houston and Carolina are kind of spoken for, I work with Sean Payton on Sundays, guys. There are a lot of reports this weekend that said that Sean Payton had no seats for him. I would say that Sean Payton had every opportunity to confirm that on our show on Sunday. He could have confirmed that to me. He could have confirmed that to uh, America. He could have gracefully said, this wasn't the year and I'm, I'm moving on to other options. As we record this on Tuesday, I believe that if Sean Payton wanted to bow out and wait for next year, he would have said it by now and he would have said, I am happy to be coming back to Fox. He took the opportunity to not say that, said that this week will tell a lot, which means he is still in the conversations, whether that's for Arizona or Denver. I cannot report because I do not know at the moment, but I will say this, the fact he did not close the door on either one of those jobs tells me he is still very much in the conversation for both of those jobs. Okay, on to football. A lot of stuff going on around the league, but this is all about the Super Bowl, and we now have a solid week and a half to preview it. Preview it? Preview it. Um, leave that in there, Aaron. Uh, I like what I just randomly mispronounce words that I've been saying my entire life, um, and we're going to do so. But I, I, I wouldn't be me if I didn't have to go through what we just saw. This Bengals-Chiefs game, I rewatched it. On Monday night, after already sitting through it and grinding my teeth on a on a JetBlue flight back, watching it on the little JetBlue screen where they're like, actually, there's turbulence in the air and we have to leave you for three minutes. I'm like, ah, get back, get back. It was incredibly, incredibly painful to watch a game that was so close and be in and out. And then the whole fourth quarter, I got to watch the, the whole way through, right through the uh, rough in the passer call. You know, as we turn the page, it's games like this that will always remember where we were when we saw it and you know, who we were with. I'll never forget. I'm on a plane and several rows ahead of me, Michael Irvin is also on the same plane. I am flying back from LA where I did the Fox pregame show and I'm coming to New York because I do good morning football every morning, Monday to Friday, 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We have to be here by 5 a.m. So that game was late, but because the championship games were staggered at different hours, I got in really late and I'm on that late flight. Michael Irvin gets on the plane. This is what I love. And picture this, he's up there in the front and he's watching the game and he doesn't have his headphones in. 
So he's just watching the game on mute. And every play, Michael Irvin, the guy that you see on TV on NFL Network, but you also see on First Take on Monday mornings, is reacting like, oh! The one you see that pass? He's just talking to the entire cabin. He walks back several rows, and I'm not going to say how many several. I don't want to talk about where we sat on this plane. And uh, he, you know, in between drives, like, yo, Shrey, what did you think of that Burrow? You know, what do you think of that? What do you think of that penalty? Did they explain the third down and nine? All the just, this is the life that I'm living. I'm on the road a lot, but like, I'll never forget every commercial break, Michael Irvin coming back and talking to me and us breaking down the game in real time. This is a guy that I grew up watching, uh, make all the plays in the big championship games and the Super Bowls for the Dallas Cowboys. But that's, that's the life we're at right now. And that's the season with Peter Schrager. Um, but Michael Irvin and I take a giant backseat to the chair that that one Eric Stone Street had. Again, Eric Stone Street, you know him as Cam from Modern Family. He was also in uh, the movie Almost Famous, and he has been on several different shows, and he has won Emmys, and he's just an incredible dude, but he is a Kansas City native and a diehard fan. And uh, my lengthy and I think awesome interview with Eric Stone Street is up. As I mentioned in the monologue, he's one of my favorite guys that I've met the last few years through Good Morning Football, a diehard football fan, an all-around great guy. And to me... Truly, if you're tr trying to find the heart and soul of like a Kansas City Chiefs fan, this is your your perfect ambassador, uh, Mr. Eric Stone Street. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm very good. My heart has finally calmed down a little bit, and my bones have stopped chattering from uh, the cold of Arrowhead. What about your heart, though? Because the cold was one thing, but the game itself, uh, we're just going to get right into it. The AFC Championship game, I, it's still too fresh to like kind of have a perspective on it. But now that we're 48 hours removed as we're recording this, I said to you over text last night, I think it was probably the most satisfying win of Mahomes' career. The first time I've ever seen this Chiefs team openly doubted. First time I've ever seen this Chiefs team get <laughs> actually talked at them. The first time I've seen this Chiefs team actually lean into it and... They win. They win. Mm -hmm. And and, mm -hmm. and it was different. This was a different kind of game from the start of the Mahomes era. You know, it was a different. I think Patrick and Travis said it best. You've got, you know, the mayor of the city that we're playing coming after, which I know for a fact that Zach and the organization just hated oh that my he God. did that. What are you doing? I mean, <laughs> it's so against everything <laughs> that I feel like Zach is about, like as a coach and a player. So, you know, they hated that. Uh, I had I couldn't leave it unaddressed and had to call him a dork, which is what <laughs> it was. I mean, the, the scarf. Like, for I wanted to say first rule of being funny: be funny. Yeah, that's that's number <laughs> <It> one. <wasn't. laughs> anyway, so all that and and look, then the Eli Apple stuff and the player stuff and Burrowhead. I mean, I love it. You know, as a fan. We love the bad guy. We love all that stuff. But in this world today where everybody thinks that – or not everybody, but the, the fringe thinks that the NFL is rigged, it doesn't help that somehow it became a little bit like uh, wrestling yeah. in that way. Even though uh, Travis's comments at the end calling him a jabroni was probably <laughs> – I mean, it's all over T-shirts already in Kansas really? City. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, everywhere. Uh, so that that was a great reference to The Rock. But look, here's the deal. Uh, the whole Burrowhead thing, you know, it just – it motivated the guys more than they were already motivated. They didn't address it. Um, I was in my suite getting the Arrowhead chant started, uh, trying my hardest to get the whole stadium doing that. But it was a great game. 
the Cincinnati fan base went from what seemingly seems to be the cockiest fan base of all time to uh, somewhat of the whiniest fan base <laughs> of all time. Talk about it because we're doing a show on Good Morning Football. And we're just giving credit to the Chiefs for overcoming injuries, and like ninety nine percent of their comments are from Bengals fans telling us the refs the refs cost us, cost them the game. Look, I've been, and we here's what I would say to Bengals fans: It's like we've all been there. Like we've all been. Uh, look at the roughing the passer call against Chris Jones in Week the AFC Championship against Tom. Well, against Tom Brady. True. Uh, like. It didn't happen. He didn't hit him. This was actually a roughing the passer call that you can argue the ref should let go. But look at the inverse of that. Had they not called it, what would that have looked like, right? And the whole third down thing, that's also uh, – or the the do-over play. 39, yeah. Yeah, when you see the whole picture and the referee running in, stopping the play – it looked bad. Optically, it looked bad. But look at the inverse of that. Had they not called it, then you say, well, the Chiefs... got this ref on the field. Yeah. The Chiefs were like, well, that guy's in my way. <laughs> so I get it. I get it from the perspective of it hurts. And I would just look to the comments of your coach and Joe Burrow and the people that actually step on the field to play that you aren't defined by one play. I've had to swallow that pill myself. Andy Reid taught me to swallow that pill of you play how many plays in the game. There were many opportunities for the Bengals to beat us. And let me tell you, Cincinnati fans, I I thought there was a chance you were going to beat us. So I get it, but move on. It will make you feel better just to move on. I've had to do it many times. Heartbreaking losses for Chiefs fans. You grew up a Chiefs fan, obviously, and you've been through it. Um, you know, I've done this with Chiefs fans for years. You start ranking them, and there's Lynn Elliott, and there's D Ford, and all this stuff. <laughs> Is it crazy that now you guys are the team that actually pulls these wins out? Like, have you grown accustomed to that? That now we're the team that, in the end of the day, like we actually beat Buffalo after having to do it in 13 seconds. We actually do beat the Houston Texans after being down 24 nothing in a playoff game, and now this game. Where you're down everyone. There's no Juju. There's no Tony. There's no Hardman. There's no Snee. No Willie Gay. No Willie Gay. And they find a way. Well, that is a testament to our friend, our mutual friend, Brett Veach. And Andy Reid gives him the credit, rightfully so, all the time of stacking that roster of next man up. I mean, that's the principle of, of football, right? And every NFL team reminds us each week that they are professionals, that they are the best players on their college teams that make it to the league. And at any given time, credit to Cincinnati's offensive line against the Bills and credit to Cincinnati's offensive line against us. I mean, yes, we had our sacks, but they, they slowed us down. Their scheme slowed us down in the second half. I truly thought the way we came out, there was a chance that we could hang some points on them. And we didn't. I mean, it was a tough game. That's the other thing I would say. It's like criticizing Travis, you know, and his passion or our passion of winning by three points. I'm sorry. Can we hit the rewind button and see how many points the Bengals beat us by the last three times you beat us? And you did beat us. We, you know, that's the that's another thing I would say. There's so much about this that's so um, rewarding. Right. I can't imagine how rewarding it is for, again, the people that actually strap up the cleats <laughs> and the shoulder pads and get on the field. I'm just a dumb fan. Right. <laughs> but those games were hard fought games before. And kudos to the Bengals winning them. It didn't mean anything in the long run. They didn't end up going on to win the Super Bowl. And the games that they beat us in the regular season, it's called any given Sunday. We 
everybody beats everybody during the season. It's when you beat them is what matters. And in this time, in this opportunity against the AFC in the AFC Championship, you lost. <laughs> uh, fourth quarter starts, and there is a drum being banged on the top of Arrowhead and the fans are needing a pep talk. Who is banging that drum and how does that come about? Well, you know, I've been privileged to be able to bang the drum when it was down on the field a few times and up in the upper deck now a few times. And Clark Hunt always does it at the AFC Championship. And I was fortunate enough to do it for the AFC Championship when we beat Tennessee. I didn't do it uh, last year. Uh, and uh we lost. Uh, <laughs> so I was back this year. When do you, Eric, when do you get that call? When does Clark Hunt or Ted Cruz or Ryan Pelham, who, who tits you up and is like, yo, we need you, fourth quarter, you're banging the drum. Yeah, so that's a direct call to Veach and then Veach to me because <laughs> Veach knows my personality and he knows that, like, yes, I love talking to Peter Schrager about the Kansas City Chiefs, but I also don't like it to seem like I'm – somehow at the forefront of Chiefs yes. Kingdom all the time. So I I do pick and choose what I do and when I do it. And I hadn't done it in two seasons, so it was time maybe for me to show my face there again. <laughs> you know, I'm at every game. I'm in my suite. I don't want to be on the Jumbotron. Yep. I don't want to be around. I just want to watch the game. But this seemed like the moment. Uh, I was caught up in the passion as well with the mayor and all his comments. And I just felt like, okay, it's time to make a return to the drum deck and let me go up there in the Arctic cold and, and beat the <laughs> out of that drum. Bang that drum, baby. And you do. But for the record, everybody was like, you turned us around Stone Street down on the field. I'm like, uh, actually, it was fourth and six right after that. And they picked it up. So that was I it. don't think Jamar I Chase first down. Yeah. Yes. Um, I love that you go to every game and I think that's cool. So you might think, all right, here's this guy, successful actor, Hollywood, all this stuff. You go to every chief's home game, dude. You're legit. You're the real deal. Um, take us I through that. Miss. And, and is that from childhood? When did that really start? Well, we got season tickets when I was in high school. My uncle had season tickets at the old stadium and would give us his every once in a while. But in 1986, Six or eighty-seven, probably Todd, eighty-seven. Todd Blackledge era. Who are we talking about? Mm -hmm. like, what, yeah, yeah, Todd Blackledge. Okay. Uh, you know, right at the end of the Bill Kinney mm -hmm. era uh, is when I got season tickets. Steve Deberg, those guys were all there, and I had season tickets in the no alcohol section. That was the way I got my dad to let us get season tickets. That's uh, cool. You know, I was a kid, and I was. And so we were there, and now the suite that we have is right above those seats, which oh, is man. such a cool full circle moment. But let me tell you the reason I we got the suite, and again, it comes back to Brett Veach. All roads lead to Brett Veach. Um, when we started to become pals, he literally said, you're not going to want to miss games this season. <sighs> and I said, for real? And he's like, dude, we're going to the Super Bowl, and you don't want to miss this. So I called Tyler, the then VP at Chiefs, and said, what do you have available? This was the last season of Modern Family. So I was making trips home every week wow. that the Chiefs were here. We signed up for the suite, got the suite, and I didn't miss a game because Brett Veach told me not to miss a game, and he delivered on his promise. We went to the Super Bowl and won it. Is that not amazing? And and I know Brett for a long time, if you're listening, he's a GM of the Chiefs, obviously. There's been no person, and it's not a cockiness, it's not an overconfidence, it's not an arrogance. The second he laid eyes on Mahomes, he has been telling me that this this dude will change our franchise and he will change lives in this market. He He's incredible, and not enough is said about him, you know, 
as a GM first, I don't think, but as a person, I think he's a quality human being. And I tell people all the time that we are lucky to have Brett Veach as our GM, but getting to know him and his thought process and his care and concern for the players and thoughtfulness of the fans and everyone in the organization and how much he is involved in the minutia Mm -hmm. in a good way. uh, We are very, very lucky to have him as uh, a leader of our chiefs. It's great. And last year when you and I really met in person, it was at the AFC championship game, maybe one of the lowest days of your chiefs fandom, but it was around halftime. And I I popped my head into a a box and the commissioner was there and Curtis Martin was there. And I think Willie Lanier was there. And there's Eric Stone Street, who I've forever loved. Tim Crumry wearing a cowboy hat and bangles stuff, talking smack too. Tim Crumry was talking smack. Yes, Um, he was. And you guys were up 21-10 at the half. And you're like, and they scored a touchdown. You looked at me and I saw this look in your face that I know from all my Jets fan friends and from all my, you know, long-suffering friends who are Vikings fans. And you said, okay, I have to go back to my seat. I can't be sitting here mingling. This is not lucky for me. And like, I know that superstition juju thing. And Eric, I do write that in there. I'm like, this guy's hardcore. Well, it's not only... It's it's different than like superstition. I get to the game before the players get to the game. I, I I mean I've rolled into the stadium and been driving alongside Travis Kelsey, like telling him good game. Like that's <laughs> when I get to the game, right? Because I <laughs> I'm not going to be out there, but I want I want to breathe it all in and I want to focus because my attention is there and. I was in that suite and I was out of my element. I wasn't myself at that game. And I know I'm not stupid and think that I really have anything to do with the outcome, but my mind wasn't right. And I needed to go back to my suite and stop talking to people and sit in my seat and get focused back on the game. And I was nervous and worried because, well, what happened? We lost, we got beat and I blame myself. I blame myself. You're laughing, but like that's, you know, that is a fan because, you know, I'll go back to, you know, all my friends who are Red Sox fans in college and they're like, we have to sit in this room to watch this series. Otherwise, it's real. And you start blaming yourself for these losses because why was I hobnobbing with Commissioner Goodell? I, that, that wasn't the time and place, right? I mean, you're the hardcore fan. You no. want to be in the trenches. And <laughs> I'm the same way with you know away games and televised. I get invited all the time to go to a bar or to go to a friend's house and watch the game. And I always know when people truly know me uh, they don't call me and they don't invite me anywhere on a Sunday at noon or 3.30 or whatever the game time is. I don't watch football games with other people or I only watch people football games with people that are like me and don't talk. <laughs> yes, let, that's it. Um, you've become such a piece of this this run, obviously. And I know Andy would have you in over the summers at training camp. You do the Randy Reed thing, which was great. You've gotten a chance to get to know Andy Reed at all. And like, what kind of guy is he for those who, who don't know Andy the man? They know him as just the figure on television. You know, I, I have gotten a chance to get to know him. I can't believe I'm saying that. I was always so intimidated by Coach Reed. And the first interaction we ever had was at a San Diego away game when okay. they were the San Diego. No, it was... I guess it would have been that last season they were San Diego and I was standing at the top of the tunnel. We had won in dramatic fashion at the end of the game and he comes to the top of the ramp and he just sees me and he goes like that on my chest. You're like... (laughs) And it was this one, not this one. Like men men do it this way. (laughs) Right. And he just went like that. No words were spoken and I just was like... 
That just happened. Coach Reed just <laughs> acknowledged me. It's like the song, the Prince song, uh, She Spoke to Me. <laughs> she spoke to me. Uh, Coach Reed just slapped my chest. Uh, it was insane. That was our first interaction. And then because of each, you know, uh, again, I, I've – I've gotten to know coach and, you know, we have a lot of references that are the same being a big kid, uh, him growing up in LA, me living in LA. He has friends that work in the entertainment industry. One guy that was a cameraman on our show was a really close friend of his. We have the same food references, the same love and passion for, for food and the, and the obviously football and the Kansas city chiefs, but he is a great person. You want to talk about a guy. I always say this, it's like, I don't know how he does it, but he seems to know everything that's going on around him. Yep. And when I say that, I mean what TV shows are on, what popular music is happening, what Legereus Sneed's been up to, how the ankle is on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, what his assistant needs to put on his desk. I mean, from the smallest thing to the most ridiculous pop culture thing, it seems like Coach Reed is right there with it, which is a great gift. But also uh, a tribute to what kind of human being he is, which is an outward, upward, life-living person, mm -hmm. right? And I see why players love him uh, because he's a unique personality and a funny guy, and he allows people to be the greatest they want to be while having fun doing it is my take on Coach Reed. That's that's awesome. And I work with, you know, so many of like former players and whether it be a Brian Westbrook or a Michael Vick, or uh, you go right down to Shady McCoy, like the love that these guys have for Andy Reid is forever. And that's even if these guys were traded or cut or whatever. And it's like, that's a special human. They, they love Big Red. Love. Well, I think it all starts with honesty too. I think coach is an honest person. It w what would be my take on coach? Again, I'm not a player and don't have that relationship with him. But listening to other people talk about him, it's like you kind of know where you stand with coach, which is a great gift in life when you're dealing with anyone in a leadership position. Whether it's good or bad, it's nice to know where what they think about you, whether – if they love you, which they love you up, coach you up, are mad at you, disappointed in you, or whatever it is. And I've, you know, talked to a few friends of mine that have played for coach. And one thing that they always remind me is enjoy these years because <laughs> as Chiefs fans and football fans, we're in rarefied air. Like we are really, truly in this moment of he's a one of one. God broke the mold when they made Coach Reed, his attention to detail, his attention to preparation and getting teams ready to scheme and play and win when you have an, a quarterback with one ankle, when you have no <laughs> wide receivers other than three left. Um, he's a unique individual and Kansas City can never forget how lucky we are to have him. I love it. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.
Uh, could we do a quick bit of story time where I just kind of mm -hmm. throw out a topic and you tell me stories about your career and your life? Because I think there's a lot of life lessons we could all learn from you. I, I love you. I think you're awesome. And I think some of the stuff that everyone sees on television is one thing, but you've got an amazing career. And I think it would be kind of cool if I just like throw questions at you and you answer them and take them wherever you want. Is that all right? Yeah, I, I'm usually better at that, like yeah. being prompted and reminded of things. Yeah. Sure. Um, almost famous. Mm. You get casted into that film. Um, take us to where you were in your life and your career at that point and what that meant for you. I had one credit on my resume. Uh, my agent at the time sent me in to see Gail Levin, the casting director for Cameron Crowe. And I read for the Philip Seymour Hoffman role, Lester Bangs. And she, I finished and she looked over the paper and she was very sweet. And she said, where are you from? And I said, Kansas City. She's like, how long have you been in L.A.? And I'm like, 12 12 months or 11 months, yeah. whatever it was at the time. She's like, well, you're very good. You're not going to get this part, but you're very good. And I said, I don't think I should get this part. <laughs> That's this, a leading role. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe I'm here. I have Dharma and Greg on my resume. Uh, and she said, but I really want you to meet Cameron. And I think he would really like you. And I said, okay, sure. And I leave. And I, this was still at my career when I shared things with people because yeah. I thought they were actually going to happen. So I called my parents and I told my best friends, I'm like, I'm going to meet Cameron Crowe, uh, not knowing that most people in our business don't follow through on what they say in the moment. Uh, she happened to be the person that followed through in a few weeks. Her name, Gail Levin. Gail Levin, yeah. Every person in our lives, like in our careers, like you'll never forget those people that help open doors. Gail Levin. 100%. And um, she brought me back in, and here I go up into this loft in Santa Monica, and Cameron Crowe with his camcorder following me around the room as I'm saying these five lines. And he's like, now do it this way, now do it that way. Like, made me feel like I was about to be the lead in a movie. Yeah. And I left there feeling so proud and excited to be a performer and an actor. And then a couple weeks later, I got the part, and then we shot the part, and it opened a lot of doors for me. People always ask about that. You know, it's uh, five lines in a major motion picture mean a tremendous amount to an actor at any time in their career. But for me, it gave people permission to think I was good, even yeah. if they thought maybe I was good. Well, Cameron Crowe cast him in a Steven Spielberg movie cast by Gail Levin. So he must be good. It's like, oh, yeah, he's great. He's great. Like, that's <laughs> how that Hollywood yeah. works. Yeah. Um, next name, and the viewers and listeners might not know who it is, but if Hold you know on. the Look work who's calling. Done. Look who's calling right now. That's so funny. Brett Veach calling. Hopefully the number doesn't uh, reveal itself no, on it the didn't. screen. It didn't. T tell it him didn't. we're doing this right now. I'd love to hear his response. Um, I'm going to give you a Hold name. Hold on. I'm going to take a picture and send it to him real quick. Go ahead. Okay. The, uh, the name is Joe Pitka. Oh, my God. Who is Joe Pitka, and why is he important in your life? Uh, Joe Pitka is the craziest, best guy ever that intimidates, has intimidated so many people, but for whatever reason, our personalities clicked. <laughs> he called me, uh, what did he call me? Oh, German, the German from Kansas City, and I called him the Polak from Pittsburgh, and we just like <laughs> clicked. But uh, he's a commercial director, probably one of the most famous commercial directors of all time, is the most famous commercial director of all time, probably, I guess, yes, per, for sure. Directed Space Jam. Um what he did all the Pepsi but ads of Michael Jackson, like he's monster. All the big commercials of my generation, Bartles and James, and Hallmark commercials, and uh, but he's got this reputation of being like a tyrant and an angry man, yeller, screamer. 
he is, but I identified Joe Pitka as someone who had created a character in Hollywood for himself hmm. because what I saw was a really nice person and a loyal person and a thoughtful person, a, an artistic person, but yet you walk on stage and he's screaming and yelling at people. And some, for some reason, I broke through that. Um, first audition ever was for an American Express Tiger Woods commercial where the ball was traveling around the world. And I go in and I just stand there and he looks at me up and down. Where are you from? Like Kansas City. Kansas City. Godforsaken place. Shot, a, <laughs> shot Bo Nose there. I'm like, yeah, you shot it at Wyandotte High School. That's where my dad went to high school. And we just clicked in this moment. And then I get a call when I leave there from my agent. And she said, uh, I just got a call from casting. And I said, yes. I should yeah. say, Peter, before I went into that audition, she had told me, you're auditioning for Joe Pitka today. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. She's like, no, you, you're auditioning for Joe. You, you know. So then I was immediately nervous. And she's like, he's known for kind of like being mean or rude to people or whatever. So I go in. So I get this call and I'm like, oh God, I screwed up because we did have banter back and forth. Yeah. Like I I did not like run away from him. And so I thought something had, was wrong. And she said, um, casting called and they said, you're not going to get this commercial. Okay. But um, Joe said he wants to work with you at some point. Well, true to his word. A few weeks later, I get a call to show up in Long Beach Harbor, and I'm shooting an IBM commercial, and that was the first of probably 30 IBM commercials I shot with Joe. 30 commercials you did before Modern Family, before all that stuff. You were doing commercials with Joe. Yes, but that's just IBM commercials. We did. I did two campaigns of IBM commercials totaling 20-some commercials, and then I did Pepsi, Diet Pepsi, Xerox, you name it. I, I I don't know how many I ever ended up doing with him, but that's him. He's a loyal guy. He realized that I wasn't going to screw around. I wasn't going to mess with him. I wasn't going to embarrass him. He could hire me. I would show up, be professional, entertain him, you know, make him laugh. Yeah. And um, we were known as the Pitka players, and I didn't know that was a thing until I was one, and then people would refer to people as the Pitka players. But thankful and I still email with him and talk to him and have dinner with him when I'm in LA. He's a, he's a great guy. He when doesn't go, like to be called a great guy though. I'm sure he's got an image still. Um, when you go to YouTube and you want to type in blah, blah, blah commercial to see a young Eric Stone Street in a Pitka ad, mm. what would be the one that would, that would stand out? If you type in uh, Pitka IBM commercials or uh, Pitka Disney, I, I was in a Disney commercial where I was Uncle Phil, the crazy Uncle Phil dressed as Aladdin. But those <laughs> IBM commercials are quite a bit all over uh, YouTube. I love it. Um, okay, next one. You've had a bit of success in your career. You're building Greg Daniels, Michael Shore. They're doing a, the, the American version of The Office. You go in for an audition for which role and how far did you get in that process? Well, I went in for, again, recurring theme here, uh, going in for one thing, being told I'm not going to get it, but come back again which I hope actors listen to that and hear something there, which is you can't control what you can't control. What I could control was doing a good job. If I went into a, an audition and thought, well, I'm not right for this. I know I'm not right for this. And I take that attitude into an audition, then I'm not right, going to be right for anything. 
But if I go in as well prepared as I can be with the best take on it I can have, who knows what happens? Other doors will open. So mm-hmm. that's the message there for anyone listening that wants to pursue this. I think it's any career, though, honestly. If I'm, True. If I'm having a meeting with someone at another network or whatever, and they well, we don't have any room for you, but why not make a great impression on them? Because who knows, you know? Your first job in any interview process is to somehow convey that you would be a good partner. You would be a good person to be in a room with them. Like your first job is to convey, hey, I'm not going to be a problem, right? You're going to like working with me. So I went in, auditioned for Steve Carell's part, Allison Jones, an amazing casting director, the best of the best. Legendary casting director, done Freaks and Geeks, all the Apatow stuff. She's the legend. She gave me a part on Spin City, saw me in an improv show and gave me one line on Spin City when I hadn't had any stuff really other than that Darman Greg. And she said, probably not going to work for this role, but let's have you come back in for Kevin, which is the great Brian Baumgartner's part. So I went in and, and read, and then they put our tapes up against each other. It was me, Brian, and Jorge Garcia. Is that Hurley? That te- yeah, Hurley. That's amazing. Yeah, testing for the office uh, on tape for the network. And of course, Brian ended up getting it. Brian gets it. And were you dejected or did you say, hey, oh. that's just, the, that's, were you devastated? Heartbroken. Yeah. Heartbroken. You know, again, it took so long uh, for me to get to a place where you put everything you possibly have emotionally into something, knowing that you're probably not going to get it, and then Mm. being able to walk away from it. It's why, not in an aggressive way, but my technique for auditions for TV shows and stuff is I would print out the sides. I would walk in with the sides and read off the paper, you know, for my audition. And then I would wad that up and I would throw it in the garbage can at the casting director's office. And just never think of it again. Yeah. And I, it wasn't like, this is no, like no, the but old, it's, I yeah. can't hold, I can't hang on to this. It's too emotional of a connection. I have to, I have to move on. And I was fortunate enough to be in a place, you know, most of my career close to leading up to modern family where I had you know, a couple auditions a day sometimes. So I was doing that in a practical way too of like, this one's done. Now I have to drive to Venice Mm -hmm. and do this again with somebody else's words. So I just didn't want a car full of paper, but I also didn't want the baggage of not probably not getting this. So I just moved on from it. And then if I got called back, I'd reprint it out and go back in. You know, Louis C.K. was doing a podcast last week, and I was listening to it. And he, was, the the host, was a guy named Chris Stefano, and Chris is a comedian. And he was saying how he got a CBS pilot, and he told everybody, you know, Chaz Palmateri was casted as his father. They filmed it; everyone loved it, and then it never saw the light of day. And that was that, and it just is over. And Louis mm-hmm. C.K. said, "I had ten of those. Yeah. You just have to appreciate the moment when you're in it and enjoy that, and you can't start thinking ahead. That's the training of an actor." There's so many almosts and it took me forever to, you know, I finally had to tell my parents, like, I'm not telling you everything that I auditioned for. I'm not telling you everything I get called back for. I'm going to tell you the big stuff, Mm. which, you know, happened with Modern Family. I was on the phone with them when I got the job Ah. for Modern Family. I had to say, I'll call you guys back. Steve, my manager is calling. Uh, but I would include them when it was that moment. At of that like point testing. in the process, yeah. Yes. Because I always thought like, well, you didn't ask for this emotional roller coaster that I'm 
chose as my vocation to be on, right? So I'll just hopefully let you experience the end part and the excitement. It's beautiful. But, you know, here's a good one. You'll enjoy this. On the way to the Chiefs game the other day, I was so anxious and so stressed out that I had to put on music that was my stressed out traffic audition testing nerve-wracking music. Can I ask what it was? Yeah, it's Don Williams, uh, the gentle giant, yep. 20 greatest hits. Um, it's very soothing. His voice is very relaxing. Uh, Lord, I hope this day is good. Yeah, so great. So I had to put on Don Williams. And then that reminded me that I needed to put on the soundtrack of the audition process of Modern Family, which is the Curious George soundtrack by um, Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson, yeah. Yes. Ap- the banana and apple, yeah, all that. It puts me in this tranquil- I got chills right now. Why? Because that's what you, that's what you drove to? That's what you were just in a yes. Hawaii surf, Jack Johnson- so for those two, two and a half weeks of the process of the ups and downs of, of testing for Modern Family, because I went in, was dismissed, went back in, was dismissed, mm. and then called back in, and then had to wait a couple days, and then went to test, right? It was a four-step over two and a half week process. Well, as you know, you're traveling all over LA, and there's you're in traffic. So that became my... CD at the time was in my truck and I hit that and just drove to my audition. So now whenever I hear that, it both relaxes me and brings a tremendous amount of anxiety to my life. But also reassures you that it's going to work out. Yeah, that's true. That's great. That's true. That's probably psychologically what it is. But those butterflies, I always tell those butterflies, the calm anxiousness is when you feel those butterflies, people are like, No, it's like go out there and feed those butterflies. Those Hmm. butterflies are hungry. So walk out there onto the stage. It's good to be nervous. It's good to be anxious. It's how you you deal with it. And my technique was always that, you know, this means I'm alive. This means I take it serious. So I always tell people it's it's okay to be nervous. It's okay uh, to be anxious. It's just how you address it. And my technique was always that I'm alive. This is good. Now let's go feed these hungry butterflies. And driving to the Arrowhead, it's different because I can't control the outcome. I have nothing to do with it. And that's the thing I would say to most fans. Like, we're fans. Let's be fans. We're not tying our shoelaces. We're not putting on our helmets. These guys have sweat. They've bled. They've worked their whole life for this moment. Let's be appropriate in in our cheering, in our fandom. And then... Let them be the most excited. Let them be the most disappointed. Whatever the outcome of the game is, they deserve all that emotion more than we do. It's beautiful. I have two more. I'm getting emotional, and I think this next one is going to be good. So how many months after the office of being told you're not on the office did you walk into that Modern Family audition? Mm. I would have to go online to see what that was. But I, I will tell About a year? Less than a year? Oh, no. More than that. More than that. The office was on for a long time. But but what I will tell you is had I got that part, I wouldn't have been able to audition for Modern Family. No, of course not. You, they would have had you. They would have had me. And I wouldn't have been available. And I would have been happy with that job. But that is really what Brian and I have talked about. It, it all worked out for you know, he and I didn't work out for the people, other people, uh, but maybe it, 
did after that. I'm sure yeah. there are people that auditioned for Cam on Modern Family that found their own success uh, in other ways and areas. But it was quite a while after The Office. Okay, so you get that job. You go on to win multiple Emmys. You get nominated for all sorts of people's choice, all that stuff. You have this great stardom. At the end of the season, you look back and you know the kids on that show are now adults. And your, your colleagues are all 10 years older. And Ed O'Neill, who I'm sure you grew up watching, is now a lifelong friend. Like When you think about team and football and what you go through... Did you ever know going into that, that you would walk away with a new family and the cast and crew from that show and still be as tight <laughs> with them as you are today? Well, it's, that's a good question. And it, I'll give you an answer that exposes a little bit about my dark, morbid humor. I remember in season one, me telling Jesse, I feel like I just gained a lot more people to come to my funeral. <laughs> you know, which is... It's a beautiful That's thing and I yet felt. a morbid thing. Yeah, it's morbid and awful, but it did feel right from the beginning of like... We're making lifelong friendships here. And we were lucky because even though you see us all on TV together, we weren't actually around each other as much as people would think. We were with each other every Wednesday for a table read. Yep. And then Jesse and I were together in our scenes. But unless it was a big family scene, we didn't see each other. I wasn't having a lot of time with Sophia or Ty or Julie you know, it was that Wednesday. So those Wednesdays became kind of like, hey, how's your week been? Uh, how'd the scene go on Monday or whatever yeah. it was? So we had this kind of very close relationship, but also all, each of us were allowed to have our own space more than people would think. So yeah. I think that was one of the secret sauces to our show is we weren't on top of each other That's all great. the time. But yeah, Ed was one of the first texts I got after the Chiefs won. <laughs> That's awesome. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I put him and Kelsey on a text. This, this is great. I put him and Kelsey on a text thread together. So there's a text thread in this world that is Ed O'Neill, Travis Kelsey, and Eric Stone Street all texting well, about the you, football game. When Travis Kelsey scores four touchdowns, does Paul Kai get brought up or is that just Oh, not? God, yeah. I had Ed. So, <laughs> so uh, after that happened, I called Ed and I said, we got to get a jersey. We got to get it to to Travis. And then Travis was like, dude, I wish Ed could come to a game because we could do a jersey swap yeah. after the game. Polkai and, and 87, yeah. But 100% Travis got a Polkai jersey after that I game. And uh, he and Ed had some great – because they're from the kind of the same part of the country too. He's from Youngstown and, and, and Travis is from Cincinnati, yeah. right? Is it Northeast Ohio or – yeah. I think so, yeah. Whatever they call that area of Ohio, they both have uh, relatable references and are cut from the same cloth. So immediately fast friends and, um, you know, Kelsey's such a such a great guy and Ed is such a great guy. Uh, It it does my heart good to know that uh, they're each fans of each other. And you connected them. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. My last one is is a random story. And it's uh, our executive and producer here, Jason, brought this to me, says he read a book. And it was, I'm going to go, I'm going to look up in our document right here. The book is from uh, a, a gentleman named Mark Ambinder. Okay. And mm. there is a story to confirm or deny that you were at the white house for the white house correspondence dinner. And you were told that you were going to be able to meet the president, president Barack Obama, but it did not happen that evening. And you were disappointed, but take it from there. Eric. What was going on and take us from your shoes. Yeah, so this is uh, the 
first year of Modern Family success. And so, you know, the White House correspondents, that what they do is they curate these tables at the correspondence dinner where basically I'm the clown at the table with all these serious people. Dance for them! Right. They don't even <laughs> let you sit next to your partner at the table. You sit across from them so that it forces everybody to talk. And, okay. you know, every news organization has bragging rights of who they brought. Well, we were the hottest show on ABC. TV at that time. So ABC was hosting. So we were all guests of ABC. So here I am at the table with George Stephanopoulos and his wife, okay. Ben Sherwood, the then head of ABC News. He ran ABC, yep. Bill Daly, the chief of staff of the White House, his wife, uh, and somebody else I can't remember. And then all of our partners. Well, I was sitting next to Bill Daly's wife, and okay. she was saying, what are you doing while you're in Washington? And I said, well... Actually, tomorrow I'm going to the White House. We have a very special tour at the White House that had been set up for myself and my then girlfriend. She's like, oh, that's exciting. And Bill, her husband, is sitting across. And she goes, Bill, <laughs> Eric is coming to the White House tomorrow. And he said, oh, that's great. Uh, awesome. And I said, yeah, so if anything's, you know, moved on your desk, it was probably this guy. Yeah. He's like, well, have a good time. We continue the dinner. I had my BlackBerry. I looked down and I had a flashing message. And I look and it said, this is like 20 minutes after this happened. Mm -hmm. And it said, White House tour canceled. Hmm. My White House tour was canceled from Damn. my publicist. Yeah. And I look at it and I show it to her. And she goes, Bill, <laughs> Bill, his White House tour just got canceled. And he goes, oh, Wow, sorry about that. Well, here's my business card. If you're ever in Washington, D.C. again, uh, give me a call. I'll give you a personal tour. And I'm thinking, okay, the chief of staff just gave me his card. That's pretty cool. But also, like, I want my tour tomorrow. Dude, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here now. <laughs> like, I don't want it next month or whenever. So, whatever. It got canceled. And the next day, we went to the Smithsonian. We did this. We went to the Native American Smithsonian. And then I was like, well, let's go to a Capitals game. So we went to a Capitals game. So we go back to the hotel in Georgetown. We walk in to the bar to have a cocktail. All the TVs are lit up. Breaking news. Osama bin Laden killed. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is why our White House tour is canceled. <laughs> oh. And I think, well, that's cool enough right there. That's like, amazing. Um, I was going to be there when all this was going down. You know, tip of the spear, tip of the sword, whatever the operation <laughs> was called. So that was that. Well, like four weeks later, Jake Tapper hits me up on Twitter, direct message, and says, is it true that you had a White House tour the next morning, you know, of the White House Correspondents' Dinner? And I said, yeah, 100% true. And he said, well, there's a story that you told Bill Daly that the White House tour, you had a White House tour, and that was the first he had heard that the tours hadn't been canceled. 
And it was an oversight that people were still coming to the White House. Oh, morning. my God. You talking to his wife and, and he was like, wait a second. Yes. That's still on the books? It's still on the books. And and so cut to then, the uh, six months later, the deconstruction of the night when we found out that, Osa- uh, that Zero President Dark Obama 30, was up yeah, there. Yeah, it was all that was going on. And here – Bill Daly gives an interview that says, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting at the correspondence dinner and some actor from Family Guy tells me he's coming <laughs> to <laughs> coming to the, the White House. And I was like, uh, no, you're not. And he canceled the tours right Why there across from me and then pretended like come another time. Well, here – so then I learned from Ben Sherwood and George Stephanopoulos being the savvy newsmen they are when she said, well, why did his tour get canceled, Bill? And he said, quote, eh, maybe a leaky pipe or something, that those two went, bing, and they came over and started George talking and Ben, to him. they already they had yes. something, like their new synapses went off. Yes. They knew when I said my tour got canceled, and he said, uh, maybe a leaky pipe or something. Leaky pipe. They moved those people out of the way and sat next to him. And I watched that happen. They got in there. So then throughout the deconstruction of this process, hearing those stories, then George tells his story. Ben tells his story. Somebody writes a, a, an article about it. It's in a book that your producer said he he read. I know it's documented on a, in a few different places. But yeah, I was I was sitting there. And, and hey, Eric, all along, you're going to an Ovechkin game the next night, not knowing a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're yeah, saying Ovi. Had, yeah, I think he may have had a hat trick. Or I know he scored a goal that night for sure. But, you don't think <clears> anything of it. Yeah, leaky pipe. <laughs> whatever. Uh, so that is my brush with history. Oh, my with God. With that specific thing and why the White House Correspondents' Dinner always became one of my most favorite things to go to. Would you go every year after that? I went every year until they stopped having it. Yeah. 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 I I loved going. I had so many great experiences, met so many uh, amazing, awesome people. I was at the famous Italian restaurant in Georgetown. I can't think of the name of it right now. It's where everybody goes. The night Daniel Snyder drafted... RG3? Who was it? Yes, RG3. And we're standing in there, and he walks in, and I walk over and say hi to him. And then I see him at the Italian embassy later that night, and I was talking to RG3, and Dan- and Daniel Snyder came over and, like, grabbed him and took him away. And I remember— like, Don't talk to him. Yeah. Like, he just needed to go go for him to meet somebody else, and I just remember thinking, like— that's exciting, and that also sucks that you just got drug away from this conversation. <laughs> um, thank you for this last 45 minutes. This made my day. Uh, yeah, this is incredible. It. My last thing, uh, Chiefs Super Bowl, I assume you're there. Do you have a bunch of plans? Yeah. Are, you, are, you, are, you, are you excited to get to Arizona? Uh, I am excited. We're going to get in Friday. It's going to be kind of a quick trip. Uh, I have some obligations in L.A. before and then after, and um, hopefully – We'll get a victory. I mean, I'm nervous, man. I mean, I know. that offensive and defensive line of the Eagles is absolutely 100% no joke. And I told Lindsay last night, I said, I kind of feel like I need to be the canary in the cave because of my experience. But Chiefs fans think they had their hands full with Cincy fans. Um, they have no idea. We better strap up for Philadelphia Eagles they fans no because idea. they are no joke either. And I'm telling you, I'm on the East Coast. I live in Brooklyn. All Philly fans everywhere, they're coming. Like the amount oh, yeah. of ticket requests I've I, Chiefs fans, if you're taking this for granted, 
You got to represent this time. You do not want this thing to be a sea of green. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah, it it, it is no Philly fans are no joke. I've uh, I went to the first game ever at the Link Did when you? they played a preseason game against the New England Patriots. Yeah, I was in town shooting a commercial with Donovan McNabb. I love it. Uh, an AT and T commercial. You can Google that commercial. Okay. AT and T Donovan McNabb commercial. But I got to go to a preseason game, and it was the first game at the Link. But um. Philly fans are no joke. Andy Reid needs to let everybody know that he knows they're no joke. Yep. Brett Veach needs to let everybody he know that he knows. he knows they're no joke. And I'm telling everybody, Chiefs fans, keep your cool. We're a great team. Don't get engaged in all nope. the other stuff. Let the players play. Let them talk the trash. I think the Philly mayor is smart enough now to know not to, to do what the Cincy mayor did. I know our mayor won't. Uh, let's just have a good game. Let's love each other instead yes. of like let's celebrate getting mad at each other. Let's enjoy the fact that we live in a world where we get to go watch grown men beat each other up <laughs> on the field and have a great time and don't engage in negativity with each other. Just have fun. It's a beautiful message. That's kind of the spirit of our podcast, my friend. The season with Peter Schrager, Eric Stone Street. Way more time. Hold on, hold on. V said thanks for calling him back last night. So either you did call him back last night. Or you didn't call him back last night. I didn't. Do you realize I texted him several times throughout the day and he kept on saying he was in meetings and I go, hey, buddy, you've got a game. You're not at the senior bowl. I was, uh, yeah, we'll get in touch, he and I, but you know what? I'd much rather spend 45 minutes with you than just some general manager talking about (laughs) sizes, heights, and weights anyway. Uh, You're the best. I so appreciate you guys. Eric Stone Street, awesome of you to join us and uh, I'll see you at the Super Bowl. Hopefully I'll see you on the field before the game. 100%. See you there, Peter. See you guys. You're the best. Go Chiefs! Eric Stone Street's amazing. That's a true diehard fan, season ticket holder since 1988 with his family, and then living in Hollywood, says, you know what? I don't want to miss a single snap of the Mahomes era. Goes and buys a suite, and he goes to every single home game. I love the guy. I think he's beautiful. I think there were life lessons in there, and I love his passion for the Chiefs, and I love you guys for listening, truly. I want to thank... Aaron Wong Kaufman. I want to thank Jason English. They're here every week with me as we record these podcasts, which I'm having such a blast doing. I want to thank you, the listeners. I want to thank uh, Jason Kleinman, who does such a great job with the clips that go up on social, Matt Schneider, Meredith Batten, everybody over at the NFL Network who's been supportive of this podcast. Uh, And I want to thank the music man. A Chiefs fan, Mr. Jack Rudd. Uh, this has uh, been a blast, and we have plenty more content to come. Super Bowl's coming, guys, and uh, let's enjoy the next few weeks because uh, it's it's alive and well, and the Chiefs and the Eagles are going at it, and we have plenty to discuss right here on the season with Peter Schrager. The Season with Peter Schrager is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower... 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.